Today on episode 42 of Stronger Than Reason, we'll chat about Nine Inch Nails' spooky soundtrack for the classic video game, Quake. Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. Uh, And a little shout out to Douglas Adams there to celebrate episode 42. If you don't get it, that's okay, but you should probably read more. So I'm dipping into strange territory again today. I seem to enjoy talking more about these weird corner cases. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of albums I could be talking about, proper albums, chart toppers, things we've all heard a million times, and specifically by this band, Nine Inch Nails. I mean, I already talked about Pretty Hate Machine and Broken in episodes 8 and 31, respectively. So they obviously made my personal top 10 as a band, but... Why not just continue that with the next studio album on through their catalog? Well, for one thing, that would be predictable and boring. And for another, it would skip over this maybe more curious aspect of their history. And that would be Trent's interest in making soundtracks. Of course, that started in 1994 when Trent assembled a soundtrack for the movie Natural Born Killers. Now, that album was more or less a compilation of other artists' There were only three Nine Inch Nails songs on it. You had a version of Something I Can Never Have, which was previously released on Pretty Hate Machine, A Warm Place, which was previously released on The Downward Spiral, and a new song called Burn. And, of course, a couple dozen songs by other artists, all glued together with dialogue from the movie and other sounds, kind of in a big stew. And that was pretty innovative for a soundtrack album at the time in 1994, and It was successful, and a few months later, the soundtrack for Pulp Fiction would follow much the same formula. Of course, nowadays, Nine Inch Nails is Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and they're making high-profile Hollywood scores and soundtracks as their main day job, and they've earned a slew of Grammys and Oscars and Golden Globes, and in some ways, the accolades they have gotten have exceeded those that they've gotten for making music as Nine Inch Nails, and it's got to be encouraging for them. Uh, Another thing that Trent eventually took an interest in was ambient music, or at least odd instrumentals, because he released the album Ghosts 1 through 4 in 2008. It was a quadruple album of instrumentals, all of them recorded very quickly with very minimal micro-tweezing, and I remember when that came out, what a surprise it was. I bought it right away. I bought it in digital form, of course, as was the style at the time. Ghosts was... It was widely hailed as an innovative masterpiece, not only for this new direction in music, but for its distribution model. It was the first album that Trent released on his own without a label. And if I recall correctly, he gave away the first disc as a free download, kind of to whet people's appetite. And then you had to pay for the subsequent discs. And it's sort of, I don't know, a what you might call a shareware approach to releasing music. (laughs) I think you know where he got the idea for that. I'm getting there, and we'll talk about it shortly. He also made the album available in physical form at various price points, with some of the more expensive packages, including a lot of ridiculous extra stuff, like jars of his dandruff. And, you know, I'm just kidding about that, but not by much. Nowadays, just about every major album release follows that model, not to mention every Kickstarter and Patreon. So he was really ahead of the game in figuring out how to sell something, music, 
that was increasingly losing its intrinsic commercial value. So after the rise of file sharing, people just didn't want to pay for music anymore. And by offering compelling physical packages, Trent found a way to buck that trend. And of course, a decade and a half later, during the onset of the pandemic, he would release two more Ghost albums, five and six. But there was more to the Ghost series than just the music. There was a fan-made film festival. There was a lot of visual art by Rob Sheridan. Uh, Trent got two Grammy nominations, but kids these days will mostly know it through the 2018 mashup by Lil Nas X on a song called Old Town Road, which used music from the track 34 Ghosts 4. But really, the whole Ghost project was an extension of work that Trent did in 1996 for another project. And that is what I want to talk about today. But before I do that, I have to provide a little history, a little context. So Let's go way back to the mid-1980s. I grew up with an Apple IIc computer, and I used it to play a lot of video games, as well as to you know, basically learn programming and launch my future career. But one game that I particularly enjoyed was called Castle Wolfenstein. There was the original version of the game, and then there was a sequel called Beyond Castle Wolfenstein, and I played both but I preferred the sequel since it had faster and kind of more varied gameplay. Uh, The original, though, is a classic, and the gist of the first game is that you were an allied soldier in World War II imprisoned in the German stronghold of Castle Wolfenstein, and you essentially have to fight your way out by looting and killing. It had these flat overhead graphics, and the castle was like a maze, and I'm pretty sure that the maze was procedurally generated every time. So it had good replay value. It was never the same twice. And there was some fast twitch action involved from time to time, like when you were shooting guards. But for the most part, it was a stealthy kind of game. And the sequel had a slightly different take in that you had to break into Castle Wolfenstein to plant a bomb to blow up Hitler. So there was even more sneaking around with occasional violence, of course. But the graphics were were very primitive. This was the mid-1980s, and the Apple II was a mere 8-bit computer with 128K of RAM. That's K as in kilobytes. And believe it or not, the Apple II's so-called high-resolution graphics mode had just six colors. Black, white, green, purple, orange, and blue. So it was super primitive. And this kind of game is what we would call a third-person game today, since you, the player, are kind of looking down on the action from above. So let's fast forward to 1992. I'm at college. I don't own a computer, but my roommate has a PC and lets me use it. He has a game that's called Castle Wolfenstein also, but it was something entirely different than the game I was familiar with. First of all, it wasn't written by Silas Warner, who wrote the original Apple version. It was from a new company, Ideas from the Deep, which soon changed their name to id Software. Evidently, they had obtained the rights to Castle Wolfenstein somehow and had rebooted it. But the amazing, the crucial thing is that they didn't just recreate the game as it was. They reinvented it in first person. And if you're living under a rock, that just means that you play the game from your own perspective, your own point of view. You're not looking down on it. You're actually in it. In fact, at the bottom of the screen, you could see the weapon that you were holding in your own hand kind of like you were seeing all the action as your character did, and essentially you were the character. Now, of course, everyone is familiar these days with the concept of a first-person game, but Wolfenstein 3D, 
or Wolf 3D as we came to call it, was the first modern first-person shooter or FPS game. Now, did a few FPS games come before it? Of course, but they were all limited in some way. So, for instance, you had Atari's Battlezone arcade game, for instance, but in modern terms, Battlezone was hopelessly primitive. It was all just, you know, basically green screen wireframe graphics. And the guys from id themselves had produced a few earlier FPS games like Hover Tank and Catacomb, which are more or less considered prototypes for Wolf 3D. But id's real innovation was to use real-time ray casting for the graphics so they could animate what appeared to be a 3D world in real time. Now, that really only worked for the walls. All the enemies and the props in the game were just flat images, or what we call sprites, and they had no real depth. They were just sort of painted on after the background was rendered. But the result was really compelling, and we spent hours just cruising around dungeons, wasting Nazis. Now, my roommate had the first batch of levels, which Id gave away for free, and they were very cleverly selling the sequel episodes over the phone. You'd call their number, pay some cash off your credit card, and they'd give you a code to unlock the later episodes. This was the shareware distribution model. You give away something as a hook and then reel them in with additional for-pay content. Does that sound familiar? So we're converging on relevant territory here, I swear. Just (laughs) stay with me. So that was in 1992. Let's flash ahead another year to the late fall of 93. So it's late at night, and I'm going over to my friend's apartment. Why? Because id Software is going to drop their new game at midnight. And they've hyped it up mostly by posting messages on their finger plans. And for you kids, that was something like Discord, except using Linux command lines. (laughs) Yeah, that's a terrible analogy, but it's sort of true. Uh, The new game was not just another Wolf 3D Nazi thing. It went in a far more horror kind of direction, fighting demons from hell. The theme was inspired by a Dungeons & Dragons campaign that the id guys had recently played. One that ended in failure with the world being overrun with demons. And as for the name of this new game, they reportedly took it from the 1986 movie The Color of Money, in which Tom Cruise, playing a pool hustler, is talking to his opponent, and the guy asks him, what's in the case? And Tom smiles and opens the case to reveal his pool cue, and then answers, Doom. So the vibe in Doom was going to be less World War II, And more like the movie Aliens, which of course popularized the idea of colonial space marines, which kind of became a trope. Though that concept had precedence in fiction, like in Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers, among others. But more importantly, this game was a showcase for id's new technology, which was largely brought about by the two Johns. And no, I don't mean John Linnell and John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I mean John Romero and John Carmack of id Software. Now, John Carmack's job was to build the next generation engine that the rest of the id staff would use to construct their latest game. And the Doom engine introduced some cool new capabilities. So you had diminished lighting. Things would look darker at a distance, which made it uh, much more realistic. The environment had variable heights. So Wolf 3D was limited to 10 foot by 10 foot cubit blocks, all of one height. Doom could have arbitrarily shaped rooms and regions of different heights. And then you had texture map floors and ceilings. And in Wolf 3D, the floors and ceilings were always a neutral gray. So now, like Wolf 3D, Doom would not be full 
3D. Uh, you still couldn't have geography that overlapped other geography. So, for instance, buildings couldn't have basements or second floors, anything like that. Uh, enemies and props were still just sprites dropped onto the landscape. They were just these images without depth. But it was a testament to the team's skill that Doom still looked 3D. The engine's limitations were all cleverly hidden with outstanding game design, and it made you think your computer was doing a whole lot more than it really was. So putting all this together, it sure sounded like it was going to be a badass game. So our plan was to stay up all night and download it, of course, as soon as it was available. Once again, it was following the shareware model. The first episode was free, but you'd pay to get the next two episodes. Uh, so thinking on that evening, I remember we planned it out. We actually had to go out and buy batteries at a store for my friend's external speakers because we wanted to make sure we could all hear the game in proper stereo. So sure enough, uh, we, we were online and we saw them drop it on the FTP site. I'm sure, pretty sure they uploaded it to ftp.uwp.edu, which was the University of Wisconsin Parkside. It was one of the bigger FTP servers of the day. And naturally, the server crashed due to the sudden demand. It was probably something like 2 a.m. until we had actually managed to download it. And wow, it just blew our minds. Um, the attention to detail was stunning. The realism, at the time anyway, was completely mind-blowing. And the gameplay was both terrifying and sickening. It was terrifying because it hit all the notes of a horror movie. There was darkness, monsters, violence, you're being chased. But it was sickening because it introduced this subtle camera motion when you walked. And it had one of my friends lying on the couch with motion sickness after a couple hours. Fortunately, that didn't affect all of us. But needless to say, we loved Doom. We played it for hours and hours. But as great as the single-player game was, the clincher was the multiplayer game. Because it was the first time in history that you and your friends could enter a virtual first-person arena and blow each other away. And the concept was so new that it themselves had to provide a word to describe it. They uh, had John Romero on staff, of course, who was, you know, himself part hype man and part crack game designer and programmer. And more than anyone, Romero loved this multiplayer competition. He really got into it and by all accounts was the best at it. And he coined a new word for it, which was deathmatch. This was an entirely new thing, and it took the world by storm. Because of Deathmatch, every college computer cluster would have a notice barring people from installing Doom on the network, because it just ate up all the bandwidth, and it also, of course, encouraged people to curse and yell in the quiet lab. Uh, I myself used to carry around Doom on a couple three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks so I could install it at a moment's notice. Uh, those were fun times, but... By some accounts, Doom was the single largest cause of lost productivity in uh, 1993. But to be clear, Doom Deathmatch only worked on local area networks. You couldn't play it over the internet back then. And the, uh, in the original version, you could only have four people play at a time. But it did make Doom the killer app, the must-have game. And it brought id much well-deserved fame, glory, and riches. Now, the definitive history of id is this book, Masters of Doom, by David Kushner, and I encourage anyone with an interest to check it out. Uh, it reads like a novel. It gives great insight into what it was like being in the world's baddest game company back in the 1990s, and it tells how id more or less cornered the video game market for a couple of years. 
because they were just so far ahead of the competition in terms of their FPS game engine, and more importantly, deathmatch capability. And it tells how Doom fandom spread far and wide, even into the world of industrial rock. Yes, there is a chapter that describes Trent Reznor, who was at the time on tour for his second full-length album, The Downward Spiral, coming off stage and going directly to his computer to play more Doom. And by all accounts, Trent had his struggles with addiction at the time, but one of those, at least at the, that year, was Doom. Now, the id guys were fans of Nine Inch Nails, and all of these guys were rock stars of a sort, so it isn't too much of a surprise that Trent would reach out to them and offer to collaborate on a future project. Now, Doom begat Doom 2, which was a four-pay product, and many of us paid for it. It used the same engine as Doom, but added new enemies and weapons, so it was something of a breath of fresh air. And for id, it not only let them squeeze more cash out of meeting the rabid fan demand, but it also freed Carmack to focus his attention on his next engine. And for that, he would settle for no less than a full 3D environment populated with full 3D enemies. This new project would not be Doom-related, but would be the start of a new franchise entirely. And once again, the team dipped into their D&D world to find the theme. In one campaign, they fought against a powerful enemy named Quake. So they took that name for the next game. Now, a lot has been written about the development of Quake, and it is covered in Masters of Doom, and it, it caused a lot of friction among the id folks. Romero wanted to take things in a more role-playing kind of direction, but that proved too frustrating, and the team fell back on what they knew best, next-generation first-person shooters. Essentially, Quake the game began, <laughs> Essentially, Quake became like Doom, but in full 3D and with a vaguely medieval sort of feel to it. Now, I remember Quake coming out in the summer of 1996, and by this time I was out of school, living on my own with my first job and my first friends in the real world, and fortunately some of these friends were the sort to host LAN parties, so Quake deathmatches quickly became the norm. We were impressed with the gameplay. I mean, sure, it was Doom-like in a lot of ways. You ran around and killed each other or killed monsters, but Quake was fully 3D, and nothing demonstrated that better than the very end of the first level in the first episode that was really just a big spiral, a downward spiral, if you will. And in there, you could look up and down and see all the levels above and below you, which just wasn't possible in Doom. And Quake also had things like water. You could dive in and swim. And if you weren't careful, you could drown. And you can also jump up or over things, which would become important for a technique called rocket jumping, essentially using the rocket explosions to jump super high or far. And we played Quake incessantly for the next year or so. In fact, somebody's downloaded it at work, and we ended up playing death matches over lunch. And nothing gets out the old corporate aggressions like fragging your coworkers. You didn't get your code done in time, Bob. Eat a rocket. Uh, at its peak, we'd have like 30 people in the game blowing each other away over lunch. It was actually a lot of fun. Now, one of the first things I noticed about the game was that it featured the Nine Inch Nails logo prominently because it was plastered on every box of nail gun ammo because the nail gun weapons all literally shot Nine Inch Nails. And I thought this was great because I was a fan of the band uh, from you know way back when, and this only helped get the word out to more people. So some video gamers naturally got curious about the symbol in the boxes and learned about the band that way. But it was also clear that Trent was more involved here 
than just getting name-checked by id. In fact, he had done a lot of the sound design for the game. That included all the noises made by the player character, including the now-famous jump sound, as well as the injury and drowning sounds. But more importantly, he composed an entire album of 10 tracks. Uh, These were original Nine Inch Nails compositions to accompany Quake, and they were available on the Shareware CD-ROM, which I picked up at my local mall for $10 back in the day. So I essentially got an original Nine Inch Nails album for half price, plus a free copy of the Quake Shareware version. And if you open this up and pull out the booklet, you'll see, if I can get it, yeah, you'll see that Trent and Nine Inch Nails are credited in the special thanks section. So what interested me, though, was that these 10 songs weren't ordinary Nine Inch Nails songs. Except for a bit of the very first track, they were all ambient, and they were all incredibly spooky. Um, None of them had names. They were just identified by track numbers. And I should explain, because it's maybe not obvious to everybody, that back in 1996, PC video games simply couldn't play CD-quality music. So for instance... Doom's music was all played by the computer as general MIDI instruments. They were definitely not CD quality. And by the way, Bobby Prince composed all of Doom's music and sounds. And some of those tunes are considered classics today, especially the main Doom theme from the Shareware Level 1. You can find clips on YouTube of actual real live metal bands covering it, which is really awesome. So props to Bobby Prince. He's a legend among video game composers. So what id had done here that was so innovative was to design a game so that CD quality music played off of a CD-ROM while the game played. In fact, you could launch Quake and put in whatever CD you wanted. You didn't have to use this one, and the game would play different tracks for different levels. And this could be fun if you stuck in Raffi or They Might Be Giants. But the original soundtrack by Trent lent a whole other level of atmosphere to the game, which was already pretty brutal and dark. And I remember sometimes lying in my room at night with the lights off, just listening to this CD in my stereo. The only catch was that you had to be careful not to accidentally play the first track because that was the track with all the game data. It wasn't audio and it would result in some pretty terrible noise. But yeah, I did love this soundtrack. I'm not going to do a track by track here because I'm not sure I could do them all justice. But suffice to say that apart from the very first track, which is the Quake theme, There's nothing here that's remotely like melody, and there's precious little like rhythm. Most of it is ambient drones with what sounds like strange things happening in the middle and far distance with things moving or banging in the wind. There's sounds of breathing. One track features tons of overlaid quiet whispers where you can't quite make out what's being said. It's almost certainly Trent's voice, though, but... It's not so much music as it is wallpaper for the game, and the sounds are very evocative. Now, to be sure, this CD was seen as a one-off thing that Trent did, more so than as a proper NIN album, though in fact it featured nearly an hour of original audio, and it was much in the same vein as later projects that were definitely Nine Inch Nails, projects like Ghosts. And... Even later, the soundtrack work that Trent and Atticus would do that would bring them so much acclaim. So the band finally gave this soundtrack a proper vinyl release in 2020 on double vinyl. 
the music is on three sides and the fourth side is etched with some of Quake's source code. So I think it's funny that you still have to be a little careful not to accidentally play the game data. So props uh, for a little bit of humor there. But more interestingly, after 25 years, Trent finally provided track names. So this does now feel more like a proper Nine Inch Nails album. It doesn't have a Halo number, but it does have a Null number since it was released through the Null Corporation, which is the label that Trent and Atticus use for their soundtrack work. So the vinyl record is Null 0.5. Um, nowadays we would consider this sort of audio experience to be dark ambient and there's an entire genre of music that follows in this vein. But back in 1996, this was far more niche. Um, Trent could certainly have delivered something that was more metal and rock here and who could blame him because it kind of had that rock and roll reputation, but by keeping things minimalistic, he let the listener's imagination take over, and the result was, in my opinion, a lot more compelling. So if you haven't heard the Quake soundtrack before, and especially if you're a fan of Trent's other soundtrack work, or dark ambient in general, give it a listen. Make sure you're in a dark room, get some good speakers and headphones. Uh, It's pretty hair-raising, but I think you'll dig it. And maybe, just maybe, the success of this project gave him the confidence to think, you know, That was pretty fun, making original soundtrack music. I'd kind of like to do that again sometime. But it would be another 14 years before he'd make that happen, when he and Atticus would provide the soundtrack to the movie The Social Network. And things, of course, would just snowball from there. So where are they now? Uh, Well, we know Trent is still doing his thing with Atticus. They're composing soundtracks and scores as their primary gig. Nine Inch Nails is more or less on a dusty shelf at this point. But, you know, as I said at the top, Trent would revisit ambient music with Ghosts uh, 1 through 4 in 2006. And the kicker is that he would use id's shareware model. He would give Ghosts 1 away as a free download, as a hook to lure folks to pay for the subsequent albums. And, you know, it worked for me anyway because I bought them all. The last proper Nine Inch Nails release were the Ghosts albums 5 and 6 back in March 2020 though they did release a song in collaboration with the band Health in 2021. Id Software is still cruising along, though now without any of the original founding members. John Romero left Id during the development of Quake. He'd go on to have a pretty interesting career as a game designer and developer and general video game enthusiast and advocate. He would start various companies. Some would do better than others. John Carmack left Id in 2013 to become the CTO of Oculus, He then left that company in 2019 to work on artificial general intelligence, which, by the way, is just leaps ahead of large language models like ChatGPT and GPT-4. But if anyone can get us there, I believe it will be John Carmack. Uh, Both Johns were still on Twitter before I ditched that platform a year ago. Maybe they still are. Uh, They would occasionally comment on each other's posts about Doom and Quake, which was nice to see. I should also add that Romero is a super friendly guy. I took the chance after reading Masters of Doom to email him some follow-up questions, and he was nice enough to send a prompt reply, which was really cool of him. So check him out. He's still a fan of Doom and recently released a product called Sigil, which is an unofficial fifth episode to the original Doom. So, of course, Doom and Quake are still around. 
uh, John Carmack took yet another innovative step by releasing the source code, essentially throwing the engines into the public domain so that the fans could lovingly preserve and in some cases modernize the game experience for all time. And these days you can download or purchase various versions of each that'll run just fine on modern hardware. I myself recommend ZDoom for Windows. It's uh, very similar to the original experience that we had uh, back in 1993, and it playing it just kind of takes me right back there. Uh, that weird night that brought Doom into my life and also into Trent Reznor's life. Uh, so there you have it, folks. Nine Inch Nails soundtrack to Quake. Technically, it's Trent's second soundtrack after Natural Born Killers, but it's his first with entirely original music. It is a classic, dark ambient masterpiece, just in time for you to give it a spin at your Halloween party and just scare the hell out of everyone. You're listening to Stronger Than Reason either on YouTube or as an Apple or Spotify podcast. Let me know how it's going with you by leaving a review or comment. If you dug this, please give me a treat by liking or subscribing. If not, give me a trick by TPing my neighbor's house. Yeah, the blue house in the back there. As always, thank you for listening, and until next time, stay strong.